electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, banks and bears on the street. The S&P posting its fifth straight day of losses. Earnings duds from J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley setting the negative tone for the markets. Where do we go from here? B of A's Savita Subramanian will join us. She now has the lowest S&P year-end target on the street. We're also watching the Eurozone. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigning. The country's president, though, will not accept it. It's another brick in the wall of worry facing already fragile EU. How soon before Europe's troubles land on our shores? And later, inside Alibaba's new troubles with the Chinese authorities, the warning shot for overseas investors. Plus, beyond the doom and gloom, we'll go inside Apple's summer surge and the unexpected winning streak for chips. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Damien. We start off with the markets. Late day grab for gains. The Nasdaq calling back from a more than 2% loss at the open to finish the day just barely in the green. The S&P and Dow also finishing well off their lows of the day. This even as some disappointing results from the banks um, came out this morning. J.P. Morgan falling 3.5% after reporting a big drop in profits as it built up its cushion for loan losses. Morgan Stanley also down on the report. The big banks also hitting 52-week lows today. So what's all of this action telling you, Guy? Maybe we're oversold. Maybe it's too much. Maybe, you know, after a couple weeks of the market not bouncing at all, maybe we're due for one. And oh, by the way, the VIX actually closed lower today, which I thought was somewhat encouraging. HYG has been hanging in there. That hasn't fallen off a cliff. So Listen, on June 14th, I thought the market rallied at 4,100. Clearly it didn't happen. We got the 39.55 or so in the S&P we sold off. I'm still holding out hope that somehow we can get to those levels. With each passing day, it gets a little more remote. But I think everybody's gotten themselves on the one side of the boat. Almost by definition, we probably should bounce here. Yeah. You think so, Dan? Well, I mean, I guess... How bad is the sentiment heading into the bulk of earnings? You know, we always start off with the banks and the same thing. And I don't think anything that any of the bank CEOs had to say today, Gorman or Jamie Dimon, will make you feel more encouraging about the economy. And if the economy is going to be the thing that really kind of speaks to the direction of U.S. corporate earnings, because that's the thing that we haven't seen a reset, I think it's great. We talked about it last night. We were waiting for some of these strategists to kind of capitulate. And Savita's going to talk to us a little bit about that. So all of those sorts of measures have not lined up yet. We still have high single-digit expected year-over-year earnings growth for the S&P 500. Until that is hit, until we have that confirmed in the guidance for Q3 or the back half of the year, I just don't think the stock market is going to bottom until that happens. Did you think Jamie Dimon was more negative than he's been in uh, recently? No, I didn't really. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, you know, storm clouds, and then they went to hurricane, and I thought this was something more positive than hurricane. But I also think he was funny. He was very feisty on the call. He was irritated about some of the stress test ratios and ridiculous things they have to do, which addresses capital, which is one of the things that people didn't like. And the capital issue being that um, they have to suspend the buybacks to raise more capital. This isn't a surprise, right? The market was acting like a surprise. We talked about that. They talked about it the last quarter when they have rates go higher and they have that uh, adjustment, OCI adjustment they need to make. He was, I didn't think he was overly pessimistic. Clearly, I view Jamie differently than 
Maybe most people, James, uh, you know, look at it. The one thing I would love for him to do, though, is to buy stock. Right. I think on the media call, which was not the the big Mm -hmm. uh, investor conference call, I think uh, someone asked him that. And he said, I I have plenty, but I do think it's a good buyer. Something to that effect. I'd love to actually see him buy stock or I could even gift him some of my stock if he wants (laughs) that. And then he would increase his stake that way. Probably wouldn't make a big difference. But I don't know. I just see, you know, going into this print, it wasn't like, you know, this multiple was frothy and high. Right. So would they have an 11 cent miss and, you know, and uh, a 30 multiple on that 11 cent miss? For a stock that's, you know, it's under 10 times earnings. It is, you know, a big dividend payer. And so they had some lumpy, you know, we discount when the investment bank is great and capital markets are great. They seem to yeah, it, does, it does feel like banks kind of have it the worst, the worst both thing, ways. Yes. They, yes. Don't, they don't get the credit. They don't get credit when we, they, they get punished when re- reserves uh, go out there. When they have revisions and they actually pull them back, um, they don't get the credit. I, I think the, the, the market that actually rewards banks are ones that typically uh, have late cycle elements to them, which people are ready to say is where you don't want to buy these banks. But um, I thought the comments were in line with expectation. I thought the numbers were in line with expectations. And I thought the market's response uh, was... Was, was more than it should have been. And again, we, we've been talking on this desk for, for months. What CEOs are going to give you the kind of a guide um, that, that you want to hear and get excited about? And certainly uh, the man who actually has gone out of his way to say and express caution for the last couple months has to go in there and, as we talked, has to actually throw uh, at least some provisions for bad loans out there. That's what banks do. And that's what banks do in this environment. The things that we're encouraging today were, I'm going to go back to semiconductors. They were up over 2%. We're looking for leadership. Semiconductors have outperformed the S&P by 7.5% over the last seven days. That's very good. Um, You can make an argument that higher rates um, are actually also good, not at the low end, but at the longer end. I mean, there's some sense. We had a very ugly PPI report on the headline. uh, And as you got through some of those numbers, I think uh, there's there's some sense that, look, we'd rather see the Fed do, I think, um, and and that's clearly, I would rather see the Fed do more than less right now. And 100 in July, to me, is where I think we are going to get. Yeah. Base case is 75. Base case implying that there is another case out there, which would be 100. Think about that. Yeah. Think about how far we've come for that to be the exactly. base case now. I mean, three weeks ago, that would have been ridiculous, right? The fact that, and here we are. And by the way, how about the Bank of Canada going 100? 1%. Days, which, right. which I think pushes you know, the Fed suddenly to be outflanked by yeah. our, our friends mm-hmm. up north. Good so. for them, though. I mean, at least they're in front of it. And we talked about last night. Why wouldn't you do an emergency mid-meeting rate hike because the environment suggests that's what we should be doing. Because if it was the other way around, I guarantee they'd be lowering uh, yeah. rates if we're in a reverse situation. But be that as it may, they're going to they're have an announcement the day before GDP comes out. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens there. But to the points we've all made, I think, I didn't think this quarter was a disaster by any stretch, especially given the fact that the stock is 37 percent from its all-time high and its levels in terms of price to book that we haven't seen in quite some time. So I'm sort of with Tim. I think it was a bit of an overreaction to the downside. Yeah, what you, you were asking, though, Mel, is like what was what was the temperature that Karen was taking from Jamie Dimon's yeah. commentary? I think we have to go back. That June 1st date, that was June 1st, guys. So here we are, July 14th, Bastille Day, by the way, um, yes. to all our yes. French viewers. Celebrate. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he said, I'm changing my view from storm clouds to an economic hurricane coming. If he had changed that view 
on July 14th, a month and a half later, you know, I, I just don't see. So, so, so there was nothing incrementally more positive. And if you look at the way the bank stocks acted today, this stock closed down relative two and a half percent relative to the market, the way the market came back. And then also, what did we talk about last night? Remember, I said I almost fell out of my chair. The home builders, they act horrible and they closed very poorly today. So to me, I think those two groups are kind of telling you what's in store for the economy for the back half of the year. And I don't think the stock market, the S&P, down 21 percent, again, back to those expectations for earnings and the valuation where the market trades at is kind of discounting that yet. Oh, go ahead. Well, Karen, in an environment as a bank investor, wouldn't you say that uh, zero rates have been a tax on banks and that actually this is a great environment Mm -hmm. and that we've had a case where we're actually seeing commercial lending in banks has been one of the exciting parts. These are two things that we would have wanted to see as bank investors for a long time. I know. And the reason that, you know, banks were out of favor was, well, NIM, NIM, NIM. NIM's terrible. Net interest margin's so bad. So much pressure. Okay, they've raised their guidance again on NII today. Nobody seemed to care about that. Their loans were higher. Nobody seemed to care about that. So I get it. We're in a market where, you know, no news is good news. Whatever a bank says is bad news. Uh, You know, it's frustrating, but I'll wait it out. Just so any new audience members that are tuning in oh, for the first time. Every night. We, every night. Every we hope there are many. We hope that we, we the reason why in. Dan almost fell out of his chair last night, he was a bit exercised at G. Swizz here, who said you could buy home builders for a trade. And that just, on top of everything else we said, that just put him completely yeah. over the top. But I'll stand by that, by the way. I still think home builders are worth a look here on the long side. Really? Home Depot was up. Longer term. No, 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 no. Short-term trade. Short-term trade. Play it from the long side. Yes, Melms. Check. (laughs) So why do we think that the banks uh, traded poorly relative to the overall markets? Well, I I just, again, I I think if you have CEOs that are guiding for a a world where there could be credit issues, this is what banks, uh, you, you know, you basically... You, you take names and apologize later or something like that. I mean, I think this is a case where banks are actually pricing in the worst case. I think we saw this even during COVID. I, I, I think we had a dynamic where uh, we saw that Wall Street, Main Street, that big divergence, and, and banks were, were certainly seen as Main Street. They were, they, were, they were underperforming. But when we started to kick back into some gear in the economy, banks, it took, it took three to six months for banks to rally back. So I, I just... It doesn't surprise me that, that banks are guilty until proven. All right, here's the main event. Monday morning, Bank America is going to report. Okay, that stock was trading $50 Okay, in February. It was trading at multi-year highs. And remember when Jamie Dimon made that comment about the economic hurricane that was coming, Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank America, said, hey, listen, we're down here in North Carolina. We, we know these sorts of things. He, didn't, he clapped back. He didn't seem particularly worried. So this one's going to be really interesting. This stock is down 40% from those 52-week highs. It's actually down more on the year. Year than J.P. Morgan trades cheaper. So to me, I actually think that that's the one you want to keep a very close eye on for Monday morning. Well, I, Bank of America is my biggest position, um, but I agree. I think that it is really important, but I think we'll see better from them because they're a little more sensitive to the net interest margin. So that's going to be a positive. They are less sensitive to the banking revenue. Uh, I-banking and capital markets. So that's going to be a positive as well. And I think they're down last couple of days. They're down today. They may be down tomorrow. So that gives them sort of more, you know, lower and lower floor. The bar gets lower and lower. So, uh, you know, if 
It's a bad place to be, but I'm hanging out here. All right. Well, Wall Street has a new biggest bear. Bank of America slashing its year-end price target for the S&P by 20 percent to 3,600. The strategist behind the big call joining us now in a CNBC exclusive. Savita Supermanian is ahead of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy of B of A Securities. Savita, it's always great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Sorry to break the bad news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we are all sort of in this bad news camp for a while on this program, at least. Yeah. And I'm wondering, yes. for you as a strategist who sees so many other strategists sticking by their S&P 500 um, targets or S&P 500 earnings estimates, what, what got you to finally crack and say, you know what, this is not what I'm seeing anymore? Yeah, I, I think that it was really, I mean, Throughout the year, we've been relatively cautious on equities. We've been looking for dividend yield and quality. And then what really got us to, okay, this is a full-fledged bear market with a recession, is the fact that, A, our economists officially call, are calling for a recession, and, B, you know, we're not necessarily seeing supply chain inflation, the, the risks that we cited at the beginning of the year, alleviate as quickly as we were hoping. The good news is that with this market drop, we are closer to our year-end target than we would have been, you know, otherwise. And the setup going forward for the next 10 years is a lot healthier. So I think this is actually a better time to think about long-term investments in equities than definitely at the beginning of the year when we were cautioning that stocks were facing a negative 10-year period. The washout that we've seen this year has set up the stage for a better uh, better decade. And I think, you know, again, when we, when we talk to our economists, when we think about where we are in the cycle, I think a soft landing from an economic standpoint is more realistic than a, a very dire and long-lived recession. In fact, our economists think that we could see the Fed start to cut rates in the second half of next year. So, so the good news about that is that generally, in order for the market to bottom, we've needed to see the Fed begin a cutting cycle. And our economists think that there is latitude and there is a, a fairly high chance that they're forecasting that the Fed will begin to cut rates in the second half of next year. So I think those are the those are the things to be positive about. Um, you know, what where where I think we're different from consensus. And, you know, we started out the year with one of the lowest forecasts. We're still one of the lowest forecasts is that, you know, we're not necessarily seeing all of the signs of positioning, of sentiment, of all the things that we track from a quantitative basis, really bottom out and tell us, okay, back up the truck on equities, no risks, we're in the all clear zone, everything looks great. Because the problem is folks are still neutral on stocks and there hasn't been that capitulation, that bearish capitulation that we like to see ahead of a market bottom. And we're still in an environment where the Fed is fighting inflation and we're not sure how you know successful that, that will, will be over time. Yep. Yeah. Go Savita, ahead. it's Tim. Uh, love having you on. Hey, and I guess the question is because we're following your work. It, it, what, I, I'm looking at your report, the 11 factors that, that mark yeah. the bottom. So you just started to yeah. almost, I feel like, tell us there. What are you looking at? When are you going to, outside of where the market has come and some of these, uh, seems almost like a mechanical reaction to a downgrade on GDP that some of this has to happen for you uh, as, as uh, assessing EPS. But you're not going to give us 11. Give us three. It was three. So I think the three are one, the Fed generally needs to be in accommodative mode. And that has had a 100% hit rate with calling a market bottom. Two, we need to see sentiment get more bearish than it is today. And if you look at allocations, if you look at our sell side indicator, which I've talked about on this program, if you look at the average Wall Street target, 
they're all relatively high or in neutral territory. They're not in capitulation mode and hiding under their desks. So I think that needs to happen. And then we need to also see other factors like, you know, um, improving uh, economic data. I mean, we're still in an environment where ISM, PMI are, are rolling over. I think those need to at least pause or slow down in their ascent uh, or descent rather. So, so those are some of the factors we're watching. In our report this morning, we list the 11 things that you typically see ahead of a market bottom. And unfortunately, only less than 20% of them have been triggered at this point. And you usually need about 70% to be triggered mm -hmm. before the market bottoms out. Diving into a sector look, Savita, which sectors do you think are the most offsides relative to Wall Street expectations? In other words, which sectors um, could see the, the biggest comeuppance, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I would say healthcare is going to be the sector that, that I think is the sleeper that could really prove to be defensive, could prove to have some secular, um, you know, rather than cyclical growth. It's a sector that doesn't have a lot of tether to the economy. Um, you know, healthcare companies, at least on the big cap side, have enough cash to start doing some interesting uh, acquisitions in smaller cap healthcare. So I think this is a sector where if you want growth, if you want idiosyncratic growth that's not tied to the cycle, if you want stability, if you want defensive, healthcare to me looks a lot better than tech, which was being used for many of these exposures. I think tech is still under under siege from globalization, reversing its um, supply chain risks. Uh, you know, are companies going to spend on CapEx in tech as aggressively as, as we were penciling in at the beginning of the year? Maybe not. Tech saw a big pull forward in demand during COVID. So if I were going to put, you know, kind of tilt my portfolio in one direction. It would be defensive, but it would be healthcare staples rather than growthy secular tech companies, because I think that tech is is less secular and more cyclical today, given all of these factors that we're looking at. Savita, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, Melissa. Savita Subramanian with the lowest target on the street at this point. Um, technology, we certainly heard a lot from Bill McDermott, mm -hmm. for one. And you wonder what that, listen, when Bill McDermott said that, obviously Dan flagged it, ServiceNow, but it wasn't about ServiceNow, it was about right. other companies. Look at what Microsoft did the next day. And the next shooter drop, as Tim has said, is probably demand. But think about, in order for her to make the call that she made, there are no real ramifications in our world for being bullish and wrong. I mean, that typically everybody's the same way. But to put out a call like that, I mean, that is, I don't want to say career risk because that's a little over the top. But, I mean, it takes a set of stones, to use a word wow. that Bono would use last night. So it's our vernacular like now? Well, no, I mean, Everyone why not? Do it. Yeah. So I, so I admire show. her because those are levels that we've talked about for a while now. Right. Well, what's interesting is she's pointing out that their economists are, are calling for five sequential quarters uh, of, of GDP contraction, which, right. which doesn't sound like soft landing to me. Um, and it almost gets the sense that, that as you are strategists, and, and again, we've been waiting for it. Dan talks about this a lot. When are we going to get this EPS uh, downgrade? And, and the fact that you know, the, the worst of the downgrade is about a 10% downgrade, but it almost feels like as GDP goes is, is as you know, the mechanical downgrade has to come sure. in the EPS. And I think that's really where, where, where we've come. Well, what I just took away from that, she just said tech is less secular 
and more secular. Uh, secular. That's yeah. how you get that that kind of you know what I mean that pullback. Well, you yeah. wouldn't need to do that. And think about what we're hearing just in the last couple of weeks, right? We hear that Google, Microsoft, and uh, Oracle, all three massive employers, are at least slowing down employment, or they might start to cut. And so, if they are basically seeing less demand from cyclical factors, then they're going to start to cut costs. And so, I think that's the thing that kind of gets that longer term that EPS number coming down for the back half of the year. I think those kind of companies, the service now, those are the highest multiple companies, right? So that's where I think you could see the most So decline. Apple is safe? Microsoft is safe? Microsoft is Meta in is there. Safe. Michael is, uh, Microsoft is a different league of multiple. Than, oh, yeah, yeah, than yeah. Meta, but I'm just right. saying for, for technology. Is it safe? Uh, well, technology is, is a sector. I mean, I am long Microsoft. I am long Apple. Uh, but I am short IGV, which I still feel is, even though it's come down a lot, I still feel like that sort of low-hanging fruit for a for a bear market mm-hmm. than banks, but no, right. apparently not. But but I, I think the, the the comments that we're having around Microsoft and the enterprise comments and where you know th- those are the ones that started to, to to percolate this week and we hadn't gotten those yet. So we've been wondering when the consumer. We've been talking about pull forward. We've been talking about inventory issues. We've been talking about where inflation erodes uh, consumer spending power. We haven't heard about enterprise, especially in the places that people think they are. Dan, secular, right? Yeah. Like they they think the move to the cloud is secular. They think software, right, which right. is bringing down costs, is secular. That it goes on forever right. and that we're at least in the early end. And that's the part that Microsoft, again, I I know I'm not wishing for doom and gloom, but I kind of want to hear something out of Microsoft. I kind of want to hear something out of Apple. You want the Band-Aid to be ripped off. A little bit. bit. And I I never liked it as a kid. I I, I love it now. (laughs) Coming up, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi trying to step down. The impact it could have on the euro and the dollar coming up. But first, Pinterest popping an after-hours trade. The activist investor making some social moves. We got the details when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a market flash on Pinterest. Shares surging after reports activist investor Elliott Management is acquiring a 9% stake in the company. Christina Partsnevelis has got the details. Hey, Christina. 
Hi, Melissa. Talk about timing, though, for Elliott Management, given Pinterest stock has dropped, what, over 70% in the past 12 months. The company, though, has had a tough go, struggling to emerge from the pandemic when we saw its business surge. Everybody was doing DIY projects. Now, global active monthly users are falling, even though the company has managed to eke out more revenue per user. And there's also been a several executive changes as well. The CEO, Ben Silberman, stepping down as chief to become executive chairman just this past June. The Wall Street Journal reporting Elliott and Pinterest are in talks right now, but they don't give any details. This wouldn't be Elliott's first foray into social media, though. Remember back in 2020, Elliott took a $1 billion stake in Twitter and helped push Twitter founder Jack Dorsey out as CEO in an attempt to unlock value. The difference, though, between the Twitter case and the Pinterest case is that Pinterest co-founder Ben Silberman has an almost 40% voting stake in the company, which would limit Elliott's ability to make some changes and expand into e-commerce. Melissa? Christina, thank you. Christina Parts Nevelis. That's a key difference, and you yeah. kind of wonder what, what's going on here. Well, listen, you have to think that the, you know, the founder of the company who has that sort of voting stake would be very welcome to any ideas that would increase shareholder value, right? So mm -hmm. then you think about, okay, what, what could Elliot do here? Um, you know, could a larger tech player with a big ad you know, base, could they buy them? Probably not from a regulatory standpoint. So are there a whole host of companies that might think about buying them? When you look at where this stock closed, 23% of their market cap was in cash and there was no debt. So maybe a private equity company would look to kind of buy this and lever it up a little bit. Um, who knows? I mean, I, I think strategic M&A makes sense. We've talked about it in the past. Wouldn't this be a great do for Walmart to better compete right. with like an Amazon or something like that? So to me, I think, again, I, you don't generally see this sort of action at Lowe's, a, a stock that's been down so much. But, you know, I'm all for it. Well, see, we sort of hear Elliot, and we make the assumption that it's hostile, but it may not be at all, right? Sure. We've seen them, I think, when they came out in Twitter, they had board seats right away, I think. Um, and a couple of years back, they wanted to, they were aggressive in eBay and wanted eBay to spin off some of their advertising. So they've been in this space with, I guess, mis mixed success. It's not that big of a company at $9 billion right now for, for a for somebody to, you know, like a Walmart, that would be, that's nothing. That's but, like one day's inventory, right? And valuation <laughs> is not unreasonable, Dan. I mean, you yeah. can make a case at 21 times next year's ish. It's not that expensive. You made the argument for cash. It's obviously cheaper there. You're talking about a company with 450 million monthly active users. That's not insignificant. Their ARPU numbers last quarter weren't disastrous. They report next week. It's had a big run here, obviously, 18% in the aftermarket. I don't think you have to chase, but this stock could probably continue to sort of grind higher in earnings. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Italian impact. The country's prime minister calling it quits. So what does that mean for the euro and the dollar here at home? Plus, believe in the bulk. Analysts throwing Costco in the cart with a big upgrade. So is now the time to buy? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. The euro hitting a new 20-year low today, falling below parity with the dollar for a third straight day. This as Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi announces resignation, but the country's president says he will not accept it. So what does this latest geopolitical turbulence in Europe hold for its currency and what's the impact on our own? Rick Santelli is here with more on this. Hey, Rick. Hi, Melissa Lee. You know, it's so fascinating because this didn't happen in a vacuum. There has been much leading up to this. You know, Greece is about 193% debt to GDP at the end of 2021. Italy's at 151% debt to GDP. So they're second. They're the third largest economy in the Eurozone. And yes, this is problematic. Now, Draghi's going to speak in front of Parliament. The exact timing is unknown, but it looks like early next week to see if he can get more confidence back. But the tenuous hold of his group, uh, the coalition, just doesn't seem to be able to hold together. Five-star movement backing out. But if you look at what's been going on, whether it's the dollar index, now keep in mind, the euro currency is 57.6% of the dollar index. So when we talk about dollar strength, we really need to talk about euro weakness. And that brings us to the heart of this story. Europe, they need natural gas. Who has it? The Russians. They need energy. Who supplies a good chunk of it? The Russians. What about manufacturing? What's the best manufacturing in the eurozone? Germany. Their cost of kilowatt hours is soaring. All of this is going to play havoc with the euro and the eurozone. It's shocking to think that they can even narrowly avoid a recession given all these moving parts. So next week, Rick, is, is a key one for the eurozone. The ECB meets and Nord Stream is set to open. It may not open. Um, what do you think about the impact here with the, I mean, the dollar index already hit another high in today's session. Seems like high after high after high. Will we just continue to see this weight on the euro lower? Yes. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, third day you brought it up in the intro that we've dabbled with parity. We still have avoided a close below there. Many of these systems that are computer driven, it's the close that's the trigger. Once we get that trigger, you might get a whole lot more volatility under parity. And yes, I do think that Ultimately, what's going to happen is on the 21st, they're going to raise rates on the ECB, Christine Lagarde, for the first time since 2011, so over a decade. And the notion of this fragmentation, how she's going to mop up liquidity of the northern economies, Germany's debt to GDP is like only 69% versus the southern economies where the debt just flies every time it looks as though quantitative tightening is actually going to occur. It's going to give really the ECB, in my opinion, an impossible job. Rick, last time you came on, I said I'm going to get you wound up. I'm going to try to do it again because why not here on a Thursday night? We haven't used this term, but there's currency crisis going on, and you know we don't talk a lot about it on the network, but it's right in front of us. We didn't even mention dollar-yen. I think more and more people are going to start to. What does it mean, if anything, for the markets? You know, it, it has a horrible 
uh, cascading effect. Now, as an American citizen, being within the borders, it's great to have a strong currency. But tomorrow when we get import-export prices, I guarantee you export prices are going to make a new all-time forever high going back in record-keeping in the early 80s. Because with the dollar so strong and inflation running so high is so counterintuitive, but what we export is pretty expensive. But what we bring in, we can buy much more. It's horrible for any countries, especially emerging markets, that have debt denominated in dollars because they're going to have to scramble to get the dollars to service the debt, pay premium prices at a time where they have so many other fires to contend with. So, yes, it might be a good thing if you live in Iowa and you're buying things exported from other countries, but many of these other countries are going to experience serious pain with the strong dollar. Rick, thank you. Always nice to see you. Rick Santelli. We've been talking about this for some time, the big swings in FX and bond markets while equities have stayed considerably less volatile. I want to get more on this phenomenon with Mandy Shu, uh, the chief equity derivative strategist at Credit Suisse. Mandy, great to have you with us. Thanks, we're Melissa. Just, great to be here. We're just talking with Rick about the, the volatility that we've seen in the currency markets. We've seen it basically in a lot of assets except for equities. Is there, should there be some sort of convergence? Is, is there an implication that that volatility in the equity market should pick up, or does that not have to happen? Yeah, no, you bring up a great point. Um, you know, I think the volatility in currencies and bonds, um, that's not surprising given the macroeconomic backdrop that we have, right? The, you know, huge amounts of uncertainty around the inflation outlook, the growth outlook around monetary policy. What has surprised a lot of investors um, is just the lack of relative lack of volatility in the equity market, particularly if you look at the VIX, right? VIX remaining in the 20 to 30 range, it's pretty muted compared to both cross-asset volatility as well as a degree of the S&P drawdown that we have seen this year. Now, I would say on the surface, it might appear as kind of a sign of complacency, perhaps equity markets not pricing in risk, um, you know, uh, as much as the other asset classes, but actually it's more a reflection of positioning and the fact that a lot of equity investors have already de-risked significantly. You know, if you look at institutional investors, particularly I would say U.S. equity hedge funds, and if you look at their net exposure, their gross exposure, all of that is at multi-year lows. So investors have already sold out of their stocks and shifted to cash, right? And why that matters for volatility is Obviously, if you, you know, if you shift to cash, if you move to cash, you do not need to spend money to buy puts, put protection, right? And that historically has been what, um, what you know, drives the VIX. So the lack of protection buying that we're seeing um, is, I would say, one of the primary reasons why, you know, the VIX and equity volatility overall still remain relatively muted. Hey, Mandy, it's Tim. Uh, you're talking about playing defense. How about playing offense? And, and to me, uh, forget equity, folks. How about global macro funds that are actually going after Italy? Uh, when, you know, Ten years ago or so, when I was running an EM long short equity fund, uh, the, the Draghi influence and his ability to step forward actually uh, prevented a major, major sovereign crisis across Europe, although we had one. Um, I don't see anything different here. And in fact, I think this is what we started this, this segment with. I, I, I think it's going to get worse. Uh, are you seeing funds positioning to actually be aggressive? This is one of the best times I can remember in my investing lifetime to be a global macro fund. And in fact, I think they're hard at work here. Yeah, so I, I do think the consensus trade within the MAC community is certainly, you know, the continued 
widening in Italian bond yields relative to German, right? So to play that weakness in the peripheral economies. Um, within equities, I would say, you know, the, the trade that we've been pitching and we still really like is looking for further downside in European equities, right? Europe is the region that is most at risk to all of these macro factors we're talking about, right? Rising commodity prices, energy shock, right? Tightening monetary policy, a slower growth, recession, et cetera. Uh, and then the trade that we particularly like is looking at downside in Fez, which is the U.S. ETF that tracks European stocks. And the reason why we really like that is because you get a exposure, not just to the stock component, but also to the currency component, right? So looking at downside uh, uh, puts in Fed, you would benefit from both a sell-off, continued sell-off in European equities, as well as a continued weakening in the euro on the back of all of these geopolitical um, and economic risks. Manny, I just had a follow-up um, on the positioning in U.S. equities. If investors have largely de-risked and have moved to cash, what are the implications of that to the notion of a bottom in the U.S. stock market? So I think the, 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 I'll say two, two things that, that, that's important to keep in mind. So one is, you know, we talked earlier about this convergence and then potentially in cross-asset volatility. Um, I don't think that's likely, right? So because of this deleveraging that we've already seen in terms of positioning, I think we could see further downside in stocks without that explosion and volatility that everyone's kind of anticipating or talking about. Um, in terms of when stocks will bottom, bottom, I think it's going to be when the Fed pivots, and I don't think the Fed is going to pivot anytime soon. So you know, I expect inflation numbers to remain still elevated, and the fact that the Fed is targeting headline inflation to be at 2%, that's the Fed telling us as clearly as it can uh, that it's willing to drive us into a recession, because that's the only way we're going to get headline CPI uh, to 2%. So I think there's still more downside to come in terms of stocks. All right. Mandy, good to see you. Thank you. Mandy Shu, Credit Suisse. Coming up, a big bullish bet on Tesla, where one options trader thinks the stock is going over the next month. We'll kick it around next, plus a bumpy day for BABA, shares sinking nearly 5%. We'll tell you what had investors fleeing the stock scene. The details in Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Deutsche Bank upgrading Costco to hold from a buy, no, actually, to a buy from a hold, saying the wholesaler is primed to outperform in a high inflation environment as customers look to buy in bulk to preserve pricing power. The call sending shares um, higher by more than 4%. Costco, the biggest gainer in the consumer staples today. Tim. Well, very defensive. And if you look at this chart, actually, it's been defensive for actually a few weeks. After we got the inventory and the margin guidance from Target and and from Walmart, and certainly Costco suffered along with them, um, they've been all rebuilding their charts. Costco, the more so. And in fact, we got June comp sales. I think they were up 13%. I think that was about 250 basis points better than where the street was. And if you look at the margin, it explains why Costco trades at a premium. So look, best in class. Um, Hard for me to chase this one when I think Target and Walmart actually have a lot more value, though. You don't like that premium, though, do you? I mean, you know, I didn't like it 200 points ago, right? So that was a mistake. Costco at at 39 times, it's kind of a bold call. I don't know what, you know, should it be at 42 times? Or do you just think the E is going to grow up that much more? Maybe. Even so, it seems priced to close to perfection, which they have delivered. I'm with Tim, a target in Walmart, substantially lower. 
You know, we wear these things in our ear. Karen laughs at that. The IFB. And people can yeah. talk to us. And our yes. crack producer, Sandy Cannell, just said they kept hot dog prices stable, which <laughs> I, I wouldn't have special. known. The hot dog special in their food court is $1.50. And it's stable. It's Do they have hot, hot dog, dog samples as you walk around there? It I seems hope like the kind not. of place I, I could get a, a free hot dog. But cannibalize selling yeah. their that, hot dog. No, but it gets you fired up about yeah. the hot dog, so you oh, buy a year's supply all at once. I mean, I. But I will mention this. You know, at 35, whatever it is, it is expensive, but it's a well-timed upgrade. But did you notice also who was upgraded in a similar space today, Mel? I won't tell you the answer because you may not know it. Dollar General is the answer. That was Gordon Haskett, I believe. I don't know who either of those cats are, but they upgraded the stock, <laughs> finally coming around to our way of thinking here at Fast Money. But you do know a Goldman Sachs. You know I do. Him. Absolutely. I know yeah. them both. We actually work together. <laughs> right. yeah. From a defensive play to the EV trade, Tesla just lost its head of autopilot and artificial intelligence, but one options trader is making a million dollar bet that the stock is due for big gains anyway. Mike Coe has the action. Hey, Mike. Yeah, Tesla is usually, notionally, it's the biggest single stock option that trades in the United States. Again, it was today, and by a good margin, actually beating the next five biggest uh, combined, actually. Right now, the options market is implying a move of a little under 9% by the end of next week. And of course, next week is when they're going to be reporting earnings. That's a little bit more than the 5.5%. So it'll be interesting for us to keep track of how that proceeds over the course of the next couple trading days. But the trade that caught my eye today was a purchase of 3,000 of the August 880-910 call spreads. The buyer spending about $900,000 in premium, as you pointed out, spending $3 per spread. That trader is betting that amount that the stock could rise about 24 to 27.5% by August expiration for that to be profitable. Thank you, Mike. Mike Coe for more options action. Tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, China tech take-in. Authorities calling in some top Alibaba execs, the data heist details, and the ripple effect on investors straight ahead. Plus, some golden, delicious gains for Apple. The tech titan quietly climbing over the past month. So what's next for the name? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back into. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Chinese authorities have called in Alibaba cloud executives in connection with a massive data leak. The data, which is stored on the company's cloud platform, contains sensitive information on nearly a billion Chinese citizens. That would make it the biggest data leak in history. Shares of Alibaba sank nearly 5% today, so should investors continue to stay away from Alibaba? Tim? Well, yeah, this is also right in the wheelhouse of where they can claim, and I mean Chinese authorities, that they need to be looking out for the social good here and, and, and also control of cybersecurity and cyberspace. Uh, for a company that ran 61 percent off the lows uh, and actually broke through kind of key both downtrend support uh, resistance and actually got back above the 200, it is now actually pulled back. So even before today's move, this is a stock that actually had pulled back along with emerging markets uh, on the opposite of the dollar, et cetera. But as I've said for for months. Getting Alibaba right is not about, hey, are they growing 15 or 16 percent or is it trading at 12 or 13 times? Is Big Brother off their back? And, and I'll tell you what, I hate these headlines. Um, it's not reason to run, but this is why you actually do put stops into companies. And again, stops are not necessarily um, hard levels where you automatically sell something, but it's where you have a conversation. Right. And remember, at 200, that was a key stop level in Alibaba. And if you followed that after you realize where the information flow is going, obviously in hindsight, that looks really smart. But I, this concerns me. Karen, you're in, then you're out, then you're in again, and then and out now, again. Yes. 
Right. And now I, I'm really, really out. I mean, I got to just take it off the screen and it's too much mental headache. I agree with Tim that it is not about valuation. doesn't matter if there's another COVID resurgence and that hits earnings. It's not about yep. that. It's about this. Yeah. It's funny. We just talked about Pinterest before. It seemed like a really reasonable valuation. It's down so much. All that cash. It is a profitable company. And we know that they don't have the sort of overhang. So I think there's plenty of places to go bargain shopping in this sort of space if you want to do it. We don't have that kind of regular overhang that exists over there in China. Coming up, crisp gains. Apple outpacing the S&P in a big way this month. What the climb says about the market and the state of big tech, the traders will break that down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple making some stealth moves this month. The tech time titan climbing more than 8% in just two weeks. The jump far outpacing the broader market. The S&P virtually flat in July. So, can this outperformance continue? Why is this outperformance happening, Guy? I think it's offensive. Tim talks about this all the time. I think as the market sells off, people, where can I hide? And they're finding Apple as a place to do it in earnings. I think earnings might be fine. I don't think it's about this quarter. I think it's going to be about the guidance. And I don't think the guidance is going to be great. And then people will say, well, wait a second. Here's a company with great company. We all talk about it. But they don't really have the EPS growth, in my opinion, that co- that's commensurate with the valuation they're trading at, albeit evaluations come down a lot. So, Rally in earnings, I think it sells off after that. Look, we, we've seen uh, almost one-to-one correlation on big down yield days to mega cap tech in the last six weeks. And, and that, to me, is the defensiveness guys talking about. But it's also an environment where uh, you're still getting growth out of Apple. You're just getting less growth at not a, a screaming by valuation price, but the most consistent balance sheet and arguably uh, the best company in the world in terms of execution. So this is what we've seen with mega cap tech. They will continue to be in a lower rate environment. Rates go lower. Tech companies are worth more. Yeah, and, you know, the Fed's obviously buying it, too, to stabilize oh. the market. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. You know, I was saying that a little bit. But, I mean, it kind of speaks to what you're saying about the defensive nature of it. When you think about the size, the weighting of it, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, you get this thing outperforming the way it has. The market could have been a lot sloppier over the last few weeks if this thing hadn't had this kind of okay. rally that it did. And maybe it just speaks to the fact that where people are rotating out of higher valuations. Does this stuff. bum you out to see Apple? No. I, you, you, hey, you guys haven't it's noticed served. me in 2022. I am so neutral on this thing. I actually a, a new Dan. Yeah, new Dan. no, I, I don't. New Dan, neutral Dan. I, I, remember that day. Remember that day about two months ago. We were in all the last debated. 22 minutes. I said maybe. 140. Remember, I like put my fist down. I said 140. It's going to 140. When it went to 140, I stopped. I stopped talking about it because I just thought it needed to have that sort of valuation reset. It needed to have that sentiment reset, and it did have that. And now it's coming right. back. I mean, Although it's not the best setup of going into earnings. No. Run up into. Yeah. Yes, print. it's not. I think what it depends on what the sentiment of the day or the week is. If it's, you know, we're in a, oh, okay, rally back, then it'll do fine. But I think more likely. How about favorite Apple? Heavy. Granny Smith's, Macintosh, mm-hmm. Yellow Delicious, Golden Pippen. Delicious. I mean, there's I a lot. I like the green lot. ones that are tart. That make that's, that's, that's the Granny that's Smith. The granny. That's, that's the that. Granny Smith. <laughs> when you, but it has to be a fresh one because if you get a mealy one, it's about the worst Nothing thing. Worse than those hot dogs. I don't know where you're getting Costco. Isn't a mealy apple? where you're getting apples, pal. We got your final trades up next. For the final trade, Tim. We're seeing these retail companies back in the game, so Costco, but Target is the better valuation now. Karen? Yes, so I do want to protect things really go badly. Uh, High yield, HYG, short that. I think debt spreads could wipe. 
Neutral Dan. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Uh, Pinterest, we really surrounded that trade. Here's the thing. I'm with Guy. I wouldn't chase this thing up three bucks, but if after its earnings report it were to come in, if it was bad, I might think to buy it in the high teens. You know, after C, there's NBC, and I was a like a proud father today when I saw you on the Today Show, killing it, Melms, <laughs> killing it. They de- they don't even know if they deserve your genius, Dollar General. Wow, you just it put them down. A pleasure being on the Today Show. Anyway, thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at five for more Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.